I'm Dan Hartnett, and I'm a professor at Kenyon College. Whenever I'm socializing with my colleagues, I inevitably end up asking them questions about the fascinating research they do. I thought other people might be interested in our conversations, too. So I decided to start a podcast to ask Kenyon faculty about their research, their fields, and how they get students involved. This is the Kenyon College Profcast. My guest today is chemistry professor Dr. Yutan Getzler. He and his research students build new polymers and molecules that act as catalysts to affect those polymers. He works among other scholars trying to understand planned degradation in materials. I sat down with Yutan in January of 2020. Yutan, thanks for agreeing to speak with me. Let's start with some quick definitions. Can you give me some orientation on what polymers and catalysts are? Sure. I think, uh, let's start with catalysts. I think most people have a social understanding of what a catalyst is, and that matches in many ways the chemical definition. Some of this might be that chemistry is the source of the word catalysis. Uh, There's a Scottish philosopher who said, I shall name this power catalysis, which I love a time in the world when... (laughs) you could name a power. Uh, So in the social sense, we think of a catalyst as maybe someone who comes along and allows some process to happen, right? There was something that was waiting to happen and they enable that transformation. And this is the same thing uh, in terms of chemistry. Catalysts don't make the impossible possible. They make the possible happen much more quickly. And then polymer, rooted in the Greek, it's many parts. So a polymer is a large molecule. People sometimes call them macromolecules also, along with polymers. It's a very large uh, molecule that's made up of many small parts. And I like to think about polymers in terms of how they behave. This is a big question for chemists generally. The relationship between the structure of a material and how it behaves in the world. So if we can think about its shape and its motion, and then what does that mean for how it would uh, wear in a piece of clothing or how it would behave on a trampoline or on a car bumper or, uh, or, or any of the other places where it might encounter. The coatings of the walls, right? 70% of the surfaces that we would encounter are gonna be covered with polymethyl methacrylate, <clears throat> which is paint. In your lab, you make new polymers, partly with the help of students. How do you make one? So in, in a very practical sense, you uh, it's it's a lot like cooking, right? It's okay. a lot like cooking. And I use the cooking analogy an enormous amount when I'm teaching students, both in the research lab and, and in the teaching labs. You know, you mix, you take some powders, you take some liquids, you put them inside of a container, uh, maybe you heat them up, you stir them for a while. And then what's probably the most different from the way that most people cook is is at the end of a, of a chemical synthesis, it's almost never 100% the stuff that you want. So then often the really hard part comes in, which is purifying out the materials. Maybe it's a little bit like making a cheese, right? I mean, when you make a cheese, you have milk, and then you add something that denatures the milk, that precipitates Mm -hmm. the proteins out, and then you filter off the liquid. I mean, it's a very chemical process, maybe, which is why I think of it. So there is that process of, of kind of purification that's a really important part of chemistry as well. Okay, and your students are hands-on for this process? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The students are very hands-on. Uh, and I think that the, the major goal in terms of both uh, the teaching labs and the research labs is for students to be able to start thinking about if I wanted to do this thing of my own. They, you know, they usually have a significant interest, I, I think, in the kinds of work that are being done in my lab, but they also, most of them will go off and do things that are totally unrelated to polymer synthesis. And the question is, can they develop in the along the way of making polymers or making 
making monomers for the polymers or making catalysts to make polymers, can they develop the skills that would enable them to do whatever it is that they go on to do elsewhere? Mm -hmm. So I assume if you're going to be essentially cooking polymers, you need some sort of recipe. You need to conceive yeah, of it for sure. at first. Could you walk us through how you conceive of a new polymer? Mm. I mean, what kind of thinking is involved here? Again, to push the cooking analogy along, we all have those recipes that we love, and then we think, I mean, a little cardamom would really transform <laughs> this, right? So, it, it, you know, in the chemical analogy there, then it might be, well, if I'm starting with this monomer and I know that it creates a polymer that has these kinds of properties, what if I tweak that monomer a little bit? Mm. Um, or... Um, what if instead of it growing to, you know, a length of a thousand uh, monomer units, what if it goes to 10,000? Or what if it's half that length? Or what if mm -hmm. we take it and we mix two different kinds together, like we grow it halfway with one and then halfway with another? Mm -hmm. You could look at the structure of a polymer and think, oh, I can see where this part is going to crystallize, and that'll be very hard. And I can see where this part won't crystallize. And then that relationship between hard and soft parts means that it's going to be stretchy. It's huh. going to stretch and return back. It's going to be like a rubber band, or it's going to be, uh, if there aren't those hard parts, it's just uh, soft, it's just, going to, it's just going to pull apart and not really resist that very much. Or like, if it's all... Like taffy or something like that? Yeah, or? yeah. Well, okay. or, or like low-density polyethylene bags, right? LDPE hmm. bags. They're, they're going to pull, and they're going to resist a little bit back, but mostly they're just going to pull apart hmm. because they don't have as much of that crystalline material in them. So... The long answer, which I'm good at, to that question of how do you how do you think of a new thing, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and so yeah. it's looking looking at what has been done, hopefully leveraging one's own understanding of that, talking with other people. Hey, what, what do you think about you know? It's a very social process in the end. Science, the idea of the scientist is kind of like this isolated person is. Maybe that's because writers who write that movie tend to be very isolated. <laughs> I don't know. And I imagine confused. Edison just by himself. Sure, right? yeah, I mean, which is, of course, the, it was, you know, it was one of, one of a huge number of people. Of course. Right? What kind of thinking goes into the conception of a new polymer? Is it primarily mathematical? Is it geometrical? Talk me through it a little bit. I mean, I personally am not a very mathematical thinker. And the courses that I primarily teach, so I teach primarily organic chemistry lecture, and then I teach the organic chemistry lab. Can we have these quantitative reasoning courses? The lab is a quantitative reasoning course because you have to, you're like making a recipe, and you have to know that your proportions are correct. The lecture is not. And that is because organic chemistry is really very much about three-dimensional visualization. How, you know, how do two three-dimensional objects that are dynamic, that have properties layered on top of them, how do they interact with each other? So if I'm thinking about, about my, my process, it's not mathematical at all. It's really, okay. it's really very much thinking about shapes yeah. uh, and thinking about the way that those shapes move hmm. and thinking about alteration to a shape, how would that alter its dynamics? Hmm. And can I then think of a way to construct it? Then there's a part where I need to make the recipe to make the stuff, right? Of course, yeah. But it starts with the shapes and their motions. Okay, so there's a spatial imagination involved. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's architecture, it's dance. I mean, I think those things are, are all very present in terms of thinking about, about how molecules fit together. That's my approach to it, right? Yeah. But I think it's also, there are other chemists are going to have other ways of approaching it. Hmm. There are people who are going to see it very strongly through a mathematical lens. Hmm. 
So there's there are, there are ranges of approaches. Have you done anything in your background that contributes to the spatial imagination that maybe you've had experience with before? Uh, I think uh, so. My mother's an artist. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I became a scientist maybe in some ways as a form of rebellion against my parentage, which was very like, uh, I called them hippies, but they said they were too old, they were beatniks. Okay. <laughs> um, so so there's a part of that. I went to like really, really artsy schools uh, mm-hmm. in high school. Before I was in kind of formal education, I was in schools that my parents and their weirdo friend, living off the land friends started. Mm-hmm. Um, so my formal science education before I arrived at college was very poor. So that probably defines some of my approach to the way that I do science. And I think you know, this is a thing that I communicate with students because a lot of the students who show up at Kenyon have a kind of exceptional formal educational background. And I think that can make it very challenging for some of our students who don't come from that. And mm-hmm. that was not how I arrived at college. I mean, my parents were, you know, intellectuals. They certainly thought about ideas. My high school spent more money on watercolor paper than it did on all of the science labs put together, for <laughs> sure. And most of the people in my college didn't take the, the first semester chemistry course because they didn't need it. If mm-hmm. they were, had an interest in science, they had a better science background than that course. Had I desperately needed that course, mm-hmm. I would not have survived in in chemistry without it. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are, there are many different ways of of being a chemist, many different ways of approaching the field, many different backgrounds. If I'm successful, then I'm an example of someone who certainly comes from a non traditional path who's been successful in the field. Yeah, I feel like sometimes students are a little bit worried that they've already missed the boat on some of these fields because they don't have the same background that some of their their peers do, but I don't know. I feel like we try to we try really hard to to build programs that you can start off here and really yeah. get to an excellent place. No, I think that's true, and I've seen that in students. I, I I was a student a few years ago. It was now many years ago because now I'm you know solidly middle aged. Uh, <laughs> many years ago, who came in intending to be a women and gender study course, I major. I don't know how she ended up taking a chemistry class, but she did, and was an amazing student. I think is practicing law now. Hmm. But yeah, there's, there, there are a lot of different paths. There are a lot of different ways in. There are a lot of different things that people can do afterwards uh, with it. I want to get back a little bit just to your field. Um, what are some of the questions that scientists in your field are right now asking? So in, in polymer chemistry specifically, I would say um, the alarm bells have definitely been very strongly rung about the danger of single-use materials. That's a big area and an area that, that I'm particularly interested in and involved in right now a lot in uh, what people talk about as soft materials as like tissue scaffolding. So Mm -hmm. if you're going to look at regenerative medicine, Mm -hmm. that's a really complicated question. And you want to have materials that cells grow on effectively. Uh, Batteries. Mm -hmm. So lithium ion batteries that there. So there's the fire danger, right? That's because the electrolytes are mostly small molecules. Can you make it so that they're large molecules, which are less volatile, are less flammable, um, but that also have very high power densities? I mean, pick pick an area. I can tell you where polymer chemists have applications in it, right? I mean, it's, it is definitionally ubiquitous. I want to read a little bit of a research proposal you shared with me, because it struck me as almost poetic or philosophical. Do you mind if I read that real quick? Oh, please. Thank you. A grandfather's wool jacket may still find use on crisp fall days but crumble well before the bricks of the house where it hangs, which will turn to dust long before a bronze plaque marking a historical event that occurred at that location. A mismatch between timescales, 
of degradation and application can be a problem ranging from inconvenient to dire. Can you talk to me a little bit more about degradation and application? It sounds like that definitely applies to the single-use materials you were talking yeah. about earlier. Yeah, for sure. You know, people uh, people will say, oh, plastics are terrible, chemicals are terrible. Uh, plastics and chemicals are... Uh, they are neither. They have. A, they are materials, and because they're materials, because they exist in the material world, we have to reckon with how they how they behave in it. I think it's important uh, to to do that. So the time scale, the degradation question. I, I think one of the biggest problems in terms of in terms of single use plastics is that we're using an amazing material for the wrong purpose. Hmm. We're using the, these materials, the properties that they have, and this is this is one of the things that I lay out very strongly in the beginning of this this paper. That's I was so close to coming out. <laughs> I've been working so hard on it. Is they have properties that are very hard to reproduce. Mm-hmm. They're really special properties. That there's this kind of transparency to them. That there's this flexibility to them. That there are these barrier properties in terms of moisture. And trying to replicate all of that is very difficult. They're really interesting. Uh, and amazing materials, and they're incredibly durable also, mm. right? They're incredibly durable. So I can package something across the world and stick it in a shipping container, and then it goes onto a train, and then it goes onto a truck, and then it's bounced around, all this kind of stuff, and then I could not purchase it for 10 years, and the that material is still going to be pretty much the same as it was, and then I'm going to touch it once and throw it away. There are also things like, you know, if you if you have an internal suture, hmm. right, that's something where you want to match really effectively the time scale at which that internal suture degrades to the time scale at which wound healing happens. You know, okay, so if it's off a little bit there, maybe not the worst thing in the world. If it's off by a lot, that could be a problem. You could have like a little, I, I don't know, either the wound doesn't heal, mm-hmm. right, because it's not held together well, or you have some material inside the body for an extended period of time that shouldn't be there, makes its way into the wrong location. So, so that's kind of what I'm trying to point towards there. And, and being able to, to time that properly is a big question. So we're talking in some ways about planned degradation, mm-hmm. understanding that something that is used for a very short period of time could in fact have a, a much shorter degradation window that then it becomes reincorporated somehow into, mm-hmm. into the earth or or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you're working on almost specifically in your lab? Yeah, there's so there's there's portions of that. The, the research that I started on when I came to Kenyon was related to polylactic acid, which is uh, if you get the, uh, the the clear, hard plastic cups that say made from plants, that's probably polylactic acid. Mm-hmm. So the idea there is that it's a material that can compost. And, and I would say there was a long time where I thought that was really the ideal. Mm-hmm. When we look at the amount of these kinds of materials that we use, and we leave aside the question of why we use that much, and we say, we will use that much. Let's assume that we will use that much because the rate of increase of polymer production uh, has outpaced growth in GDP and population since their introduction in the 1960s. So we, as a species, somehow love these things so much. So you look at that volume of material, and then you think about putting that all into ecosystems. I think, in fact, composting or the idea that it would go back into ecosystems in a degradation, in that kind of degradation, is not a great plan. Mm. I think the 
people talk about eutrophication, right? If you have a lot of organic matter in streams and that then that organic matter is oxidized, it removes oxygen from the stream, then you have dead streams. It's related, a lot of it's related to nitrogen and phosphorus, which is mostly agricultural runoff, but also just the general nutrient load on, a, on an ecosystem mm -hmm. can be problematic. So the, the thought that, uh, the idea that I'm uh, kind of wrestling with right now is can we design materials so that they can, that, that there's value in recovering them and that there's an easy way to return them to their starting material so we could take those monomers, those little mm -hmm. things, make them into polymers, these big molecules that have these very special properties that we really like, and then at the end of that cycle, recover them and break them back down and degrade them. You know, degradation, it's often a, a negative term, right? Mm -hmm. In chemistry, it just means changing its form, making it simpler. And, and that's then, right, if, if we're talking about some starting point, some end point, and finding a specific pathway there, oh, hey, that's catalysis, right? Maybe potentially. Finding mm -hmm. molecules that help guide that process. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about recycling? I mean, like, for example, just for, for lay people in the world, what do sure. those recycling numbers mean? Right. So the recycling numbers, what they represent are the, the resin, the large molecules that were made before they were made into the products. And I could go through them and say their names. I think that's probably mostly not going to have a ton of meaning for most <laughs> of the listeners, right? Um, th those were created uh, quite a while ago as a means of trying to deal with the first round of this problem, which was people noticed there was a lot of litter on the highways, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, that's no good, right? So, so then there was, they were starting to think about collection and reuse, um, right? And the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, right? Recycle is the last one of those. Uh, and they were put in that way because it's really the least impactful one. So they represent the structures, in fact, of the molecules. Those numbers represent, represent molecular structures. Hmm. And so when we think about uh, which ones are easier to recycle than others, it's, it's, again, it's related to the structure of those molecules. So number one is the easiest to recycle because the structure of that very large molecule has bonds in it that we know a lot about how to change, how mm -hmm. to make and break. And the other ones, well, two through six, those bonds are, we have a much harder time uh, as chemists. We haven't yet really fully developed the technologies to make and break those bonds. Mm -hmm. So that's another area that people are thinking very hard about. Can we develop, develop really good technologies to help more easily make and break and more efficiently and more selectively make and break those bonds? Yeah, what are some things, what, are there some number ones that, that people see every day out in the world? Uh, I think like a lot of juice containers are oh, okay. number ones. So like a beverage container, a hard, clear beverage container is most often going to be a number one. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And you were about to talk about number seven, right? Because two through six are just these other ones that are a little harder to, let's say, degrade efficiently. Those numbers were given because those were the compounds that were produced at the largest volume. So it kind of mm -hmm. makes sense to give them those numbers, right? This is what there's a lot of, let's number them. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, uh, uh, two and four are more closely related than any of the others. <laughs> but they, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know the whole history of why, which ones got which numbers. Seven is other, right? They were at least smart enough to think like, this won't be it forever <laughs> for the rest of the time. So seven is other. So there are all these things that you would come across where, where it's like, oh, this, we, we should be able to do something with this. Yes, but seven is this huge category that comprises like everything that's not these six things that are made in such large volume. 
that's a hard problem. And where does your lab work within these this number <laughs> we're all, system? We're all sevens. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're all sevens for sure. And there's interesting. There's a lot of interesting work that's being done. Uh, I would say still in one through six. IBM has a huge project. They they claim that they're going to revolutionize uh, recycling with uh, number one uh, in the next five years. It's it's possible. I mean, I'm I'm really curious about that. I'm really very curious about that. It's a that should be the easiest one to recycle, and I know they have a big push towards it. People have tried and failed in the past a lot. <laughs> um, there's a long history of trying with this one. Yeah. To what extent do you see your work as overlapping with people in other fields like public health, public policy, things like that? Because in our initial conversation, you said to me, the way people think about plastics is the way they think about other larger systems. And that seems to suggest that we have a very complicated relationship with plastics in some ways. I think uh, I'm constantly pulled by my general curiosity. So I see all these places where there are these fundamental questions of chemistry in terms of how we use plastics and how we reuse them. And then I start to look upstream and I think, mm -hmm. oh man, there's society, mm -hmm. right? That's really maybe the problem that needs to get solved. But I, I can't. That's Those aren't my skills. Those aren't my abilities, right? And you aren't writing legislation, for example. No, no, yeah. no. I do think, though, and this is maybe one, you know, this is probably part of what draws me to liberal arts college. I, I hope, I'm excited when students of mine go into chemistry. I'm really excited by that. And I see them go off and do significant work in the sciences, uh, and that makes me really proud of them. And I'm also really excited when uh, students of mine who did research with me, uh, you know, decide to go get an MPH mm -hmm. or uh, or go and do work in other areas. Go, you know, go off into the Peace Corps. And I think that the, the training that we give them, I hope, allows them to do that work that touches on chemistry, which I'm going to argue touches on everything. In fact, you can't touch things without being a chemical and touching chemicals. Uh, <laughs> that they can then use that background to help solve those other problems and, and to help understand where maybe the tools that chemistry best has can be brought to bear. Mm -hmm. Just bear with me here. Is it possible to explain how the chemistry in degradation catalysts works to someone like me with a chemistry background of one year in high school and one semester in college? <laughs> or is that almost a lost cause? I think it's possible. I think, I mean, some of what I said before was maybe just to understand that in, in degradation with chemistry, what we're talking about is taking a large thing and making it smaller. Mm -hmm. So understanding how pieces are put together and understanding how we can take them apart is important. If there's a house, right, or let's say a barn, people love barns. Especially in Ohio, there's a lot of old barns around. At some point, someone may, may want to replace that barn. And I would say there's kind of two canonically opposed methods that we could do. One is a wrecking ball, which will be very fast and very efficient and leave us with a pile of stuff. right? Uh, and the other would be to bring in skilled craftspeople who can pull out individual nails and pegs and take all of those pieces uh, and use as, much, as, much, as many of them as they can. And what I'm trying to do is build a process that has as much of the speed of the wrecking ball as possible and as much of the precision of that step-by-step -step deconstruction as possible. So here's what's hard about that, right? That means knowing everything about how a barn was built, knowing those skills of the craftsperson, knowing mm -hmm. how pieces are going to fall down when you take one piece out. It's a very broad process. And then building a tool that does it, right? Hmm. And also along the way, 
probably having a lot of barns fall on me. Like there's <laughs> from outside of the sciences, I think what we see are either the dramatic successes or the like horrifying failures, right? Mm. Uh, we can think about uh, the increase in survival to adulthood of people with juvenile cancers. This is like one of the great uh, cases for chemotherapy. Uh, and you can see when chemotherapy came into play, all of a sudden, like, there were all of these things that just killed everyone, and mm-hmm. then they didn't anymore. And then there's the Bhopal disaster, right, mm-hmm. where there was this release of isocyanates, and it killed huge numbers of people. Along the way, in between these terrible failures and these amazing successes, is, is mostly failure, mm-hmm. hopefully on a very small scale that doesn't hurt anyone, right? But the process of doing chemical research is if you succeed at a rate of 5%, you are spectacularly successful. <laughs> you know, mostly what we do is fail and fail and fail and fail and try to learn from that, right? And mm-hmm. reframe that as a process of gradual learning. So what are you working on right now? Uh, there's, there's two things. One of them is really related to this question of controlled degradation, and that's a project that actually comes out of a student being really persistent with me. Hmm. <laughs> Being really persistent and ignoring my complaints. So a student came to me with a process that we were working on. We were trying to make polymers and and for a very specific purpose. And I still will eventually get to that, I think, someday. And he was showing me data. And the data, there there were things that were consistent with that polymer being made. And then there was something else in there. And that was not polymer. It wasn't our starting material. And it wasn't our polymer. And he really wanted to know what that was. And I was like... (laughs) <laughs> holding my head, eyes closed, rubbing my forehead. We're polymer chemists, right? Like, we can, I can see that we're making the polymer. Let's just make more of the polymer. And he was like, but I really, I think I can figure out what that is. And I really want to. And we'd, like, had this argument for probably a year. And then it was his last semester, and he'd worked with me for a bunch of years. And I was like, you know what? You've, like, you've put in your time in the salt mines. Like, follow your bliss, right? Mm-hmm. And he went and he found that molecule. Did a lot of careful work to isolate it, uh, and it was a small molecule, and it was confusing because it had exactly the same chemical composition as our starting material, and its its spectroscopic signature, the data that he was collecting about it, it looked very similar, but it wasn't the same. There was all of the stuff that was confusing about it, and what we figured is that we had this polymer or this monomer, it had some potential energy, and we could use that potential energy to make the polymer, and then there was this other molecule that could be made when the polymer degraded that had even less potential energy than the polymer. So we had this pathway of a lot of energy in the monomer. We used that to make the polymer, and there was residual energy in the polymer that I hadn't quite realized was there mm-hmm. that could be harnessed to make this, mo- this, this small molecule that was very stable. The other, the other thing is inspired by, my, uh, by some work that I did during my sabbatical where I was back in my graduate lab, a guy named Jeff Coates, who's at uh, Cornell, and a, a spectacular chemist and uh, a very sweet person. We should say he also happens to be my college roommate's older brother. Oh, right. Yes. I, we Which we realized, yeah, when it's, we were talking. It, it's insane. It's insane. What a small world that this is. One of the things that, that Jeff said to me, and it kind of rationalized the, the way that I choose students to work with also, because I was back with him and, and, and talking with him, and he said, you know, I really, I just want to pick people who I enjoy working with because everyone struggles. Mm-hmm. Everyone will struggle, right? That's for sure the nature of graduate school uh, is, is mostly one of struggle. And, and as I just described the process of doing science, in general, the process of doing science is one of struggle. 
want to pick people who I like because at least when they're struggling, then I then I want to help them. Anyway, I was back there and took on this writing project, this quest that's related to this question of polymer recycling. Uh, took on this big writing project, and that's got me thinking a little bit about little areas there uh, where I can bring that question of what I've termed chemical recycling to monomer into the research here. So that process of taking a monomer, making it into a polymer that has properties you want, and then being able to turn it back into that monomer. And so that's something that is, as the degradation project eventually comes to completion, I'm trying to ramp that project up. And, and the initial stages of that are mostly going to be about writing, I think. So there's this uh, big review that um, that's coming out, I think, in the next month or two. And then this summer, there's a there's something that didn't fit into that review, and I'm going to try to write like a little piece about that that's much smaller and more technical. Hmm. So I, so the initial stages of this, and this is the first time I've approached a project this way, really, which is to do the writing first. Uh, like I'm finally growing up as a scientist, I think, like doing. <laughs> A lot of that front end of educating myself uh, about it as I'm as I'm as I'm starting to make that happen. And some of what makes that possible is I have projects that are already mature in my lab that can kind of students can continue to work on and make progress on mm-hmm. it and and have that happen while I'm kind of educating myself about this new area. Is there one thing you wish other chemists knew about your work? I trust that if they had the curiosity, they could they could find things in what I do. Uh, that would be of interest to them, and then we could have a good conversation. I mean, I guess I trust that also in general about about anyone who's intellectually engaged. That's like the goal of the liberal arts education, right? I think one definition of it is to make a person who is capable of asking a good question in any field. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily need to know the answer, but they need to be able to listen and see like, oh, there's a spot mm-hmm. where I don't know something, where there's an un- un- unanswered part. I think um, outside of the sciences, I mean, I, I do it because it's fun. For me, right? I do mm-hmm. it because it's a it's there and and in the actual practice of the science itself, some of the reason I do the science I do is I like how it feels, I like how it sounds, I like the I like the smells, I like the all of that the act of doing science, the material act of doing science, I think is enormously pleasurable. And I have found that in the process of doing science myself in the lab, um, you know, it's a kind of walking meditation when I'm really engaged in a process, when I'm really doing, in, in the lab doing that work, all the world, like it just goes away, right? And I'm there in that moment trying to complete this task at a very high level. You know, President Decatur regularly uses chemistry concepts as metaphors when he speaks in public, as I know you know, you yeah, and I have yeah, talked yeah, about this. Yeah. What concepts in chemistry can help us understand the world more broadly, in your yeah. opinion? Well, he, so I think he gets it right. I mean, he, he talks about thermodynamics and kinetics. He uses those things. And those are, um, those are I think, the most fundamental ways that we can understand the behavior of the material world. So my mother, I, th- I said earlier, my mother's an artist. Um, and years ago, it was actually my first year in graduate school, I'm pretty sure. I came home for the winter break, and she had a futon cover that she wanted to get washed, right? And since I was home, I was going to help her with this. Uh, and um, so we had to take it. We had to take it off, and as it sighted like fits tightly, and you got to unzip the thing, and you got to pull it over. And the analogy that I was giving her to this in terms of chemistry is that we know there's this desirable thing at the end, which is having a washed cover that's back on, right? 
That's this possible desirable thing. That's this low energy state we're moving towards. <laughs> and there's this huge barrier between here and there. And to think about what is the highest energy state there like, once we get it past that point, we can essentially consider this problem done because everything else is easier than that, right? This is kinetics. And President Decatur talks about this, has talked about this before, right? That those like those difficult moments, those most difficult moments where once we've gotten past them, it's kind of it's all downhill from there. That's mm -hmm. it's an analogy, right? And then there's a reality, like when you've gotten over that pass, you know, then it's then it's like it is a lot easier from there. And and that's a lot of the thinking that that we do in chemistry is trying to identify that most difficult moment and how can we lower the energy for it, make it easier, think about those pathways. So yeah, thermo and kinetics, those are that's it. And by the way, I'm gonna go ahead and say. Chemistry deserves uh, an enormous amount of credit for thermodynamics. This is, we, we figured this out in terms of the steam engine, right? This is where, this is a lot of where it comes from, uh, is are these very fundamental chemical processes. Um, so. Well, Yutan Getzler, thank you so much for speaking <laughs> with me. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This episode was recorded at the Wright Center in downtown Mount Vernon in the beautiful facilities of the Department of Dance, Drama, and Film. My thanks go to my editor and junior producer, Elizabeth Aduma, Kenyan class of 2020, who recorded this episode, edited it, and made it sound professional. Thank you also to the Center for Innovative Pedagogy that funded this project and consulted on it since the beginning.